As the world resets, be part of the rethinking, remapping, and retooling to address society's most challenging issues. Be part of lasting change with a part-time UChicago policy degree from the Harris School of Public Policy Evening Master's Program. Build your data science and analytical toolkit to take the next step in your career. Apply by December 15th at harris.uchicago.edu slash evening program. Think back to the United States in February 2003. Every statement I make today is backed up by sources, solid sources. It was the eve of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, and Colin Powell, then Secretary of State, addressed the United Nations Security Council. What we're giving you are facts and conclusions based on solid intelligence. Powell was there to lay out what he claimed was the case for war. The gravity of this moment is matched by the gravity of the threat that Iraq's weapons of mass destruction posed to the world. He showed satellite images, played audio recordings, and shared intelligence data. This is evidence, not conjecture. This is true. Of course, we would find out just a year and a half later that much of this was just not true. To me, it was the distillation of how this secret information becomes part of a kind of theater. It becomes part of a performance. And, and Powell literally was performing. That's Austin Carson. In 2003, he was working as a research analyst at a national security think tank in Washington, D.C. He remembers watching that speech, and what really struck him was Powell's presentation itself. He had a script, and he had, he had a presentation, he had, you know, a dozen staff members, but it really just encapsulated that idea of sort of like the theater and the performance and the way secrets and intelligence play a role in that. Today, Carson is an assistant professor at the University of Chicago, where he studies secrecy, intelligence, and their role in international politics. His research reveals how a complex web of political theater, both behind and in front of the curtain, dictates which secrets governments choose to reveal or conceal. Motivation for all of my research is a question that I still can't fully answer and still have not figured out, which is how to balance democracy and the utility of secrecy in foreign policy. From the University of Chicago, this is Big Brains, a podcast about the pioneering research and pivotal breakthroughs that are reshaping our world. On this episode, the politics of secrecy. I'm your host, Paul Rand. When does a government choose to reveal a secret or conceal one? Governments, just like uh, people in everyday life, care about the impression they're making and that this practice of revealing certain things or keeping things secret is part of a fairly well-tuned system for managing and molding how people perceive what governments are up to. And it, you don't have to put on a tinfoil hat and think that you know, governments are doing this to, you know, to put, pull one over our eyes or something. When, when we talk about secrets, what, what are we talking about? It's spies, is it covert military operations? What constitutes a secret? You know, generally, I, I use a pretty everyday definition of what secrets are, which is intentional concealment from one or more audiences. It includes the process of intelligence collection, espionage, which can include the James Bond spies, but also technical systems such as overhead imagery that's collected by satellite or something. But other elements of secrecy are, yeah, covert forms of state behavior. We'll look at that government in the shadows, 
Next week, Congress will publish a report on the Iran-Contra scandal. This might be covert activity during a war. And we look now at the West's secret war in Libya. A new report in French daily Le Monde indicates that French special forces have been carrying out covert operations. This might be a covert attempt to coordinate with or execute a regime change operation. For the first time now, the CIA has released documents that show its role in the 1953 coup. That is the coup that toppled Iran's democratically elected prime minister. But it can also include things like the secrecy that surrounds peace negotiations uh, that, that may be uh, really essential to, to reaching an agreement to end war. Um, so sort of the governments do all kinds of things. They, they engage in trade negotiations in secret. And, and those may be made you know, publicly uh, available or at least the agreements they reach. Uh, but secrecy, is, it, it sort of has uh, manifestations, I think, across the, the gamut of, of international politics oftentimes. This dynamic creates what Carson calls the front stage and the backstage of international secrets. He says we should think of it like a theater. So the front stage, in my version of this analogy, is it, it does not refer, it refers to the opposite of secrecy, things that are publicly visible. So what you do on the front stage is visible to any audience, any person in the audience, right? So, so any possible uh, witnessing group uh, in international politics. On the backstage are the actors, or the governments, and all have secrets and are running past each other to put on the show. The backstage is interesting precisely because other actors know what their counterparts are doing on the backstage, even as the audience doesn't know. And in fact, some of the work I've done has interrogated that assumption to the extent of saying, sometimes governments want to, to have other governments know what they're doing covertly or secretly. That's part of the point. I've even found discussions of, hey, we should do this covert harassment operation against North Vietnam during the Vietnam War, because we want them to think that we might do even more. They want them to detect it. Uh, they don't want to do it openly because that would, that would be a much larger incident. Um, but they, they are quite happy with the other side understanding the gist of what they're doing. This is a crucial piece of Carson's research. The things that are secrets to us are often not secret between governments. One example he lays out in his book is Soviet involvement in the Korean War when the communist North Korea invaded South Korea. This attack has made it clear beyond all doubt that the international communist movement is willing to use armed invasion to conquer independent nations. You know, for decades we had been told that the war was not fought directly between the U.S. and Soviet Union. The Soviet Union helped its Chinese and North Korean allies but didn't participate in the war. The free nations face a worldwide threat. It must be met with a worldwide defense. But then uh, after the end of the Cold War, declassification of American records and interviews with some aging Soviet veterans made it clear that they did covertly participate in the air war. It's not like the U.S. and Soviets sat down and said, OK, let's keep this secret from everyone. But it's sort of at a tacit level. The Soviets did it secretly and the Americans had their own reasons to keep it secret. Uh, neither side ended up advertising or going public with the, the fact that their pilots were shooting one another down over the skies of North Korea. But there uh, are some declassified materials I read which discuss this in, in detail, which suggested that the United States very much cared about wh where the Soviet Union was flying those flights. It was tolerable for the Soviets to fly flights that didn't harm the American position in the war, but kept the North Koreans from losing the war. And so we can imagine in a counterfactual world where the Soviet Union got a little too greedy and said, OK, we're not just going to fly flights 
that protect our North Korean ally, but we're actually going to go fly flights and harm American troops behind their front lines, that the United States may well have said, okay, you know what, this is intolerable. And we're going to, um, we're going to publicize this as a way to, you know, to, to let the Soviets know we're not cool with it, as a way to gin up uh, domestic and international sympathy for taking action against the Soviets. And so what I like to think is that there is this equilibrium where both, you know, both sides in this conflict can value secrecy and can tacitly or explicitly work together to keep it that way. But if either side kind of goes a little too far and takes too much advantage of that, then I think that shared interest can break down and you can get things splashed onto the front page of the New York Times. So there's a lot more coordination on some of the secrecy keeping than you would actually think is actually going on. And, and they're doing it to allow uh, conflicts to de-escalate. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, there's versions of this. And part of my intuition was, was supported by knowing that there's a lot of live and let live and sort of tacit forms of, of coordination in the espionage world, too. So peacetime espionage. Let's think about, you know, the Americans, the FX series. Uh, you know, how many sp Soviet spies are, the, are in the United States and how many American spies are in the Soviet Union? Well, those things are tracked very carefully by the counterintelligence agencies of each country. But there's a certain degree to which if you start publicizing who's a spy in your country, or expelling them from your territory or just revealing who they are, well, guess what the other side's going to do? They're going to do the same thing. <laughs> and if you're, if you're basically gouging each other's eyes out, so to speak, so that it isn't nothing, not, what the other country's doing isn't very visible to you, but same goes for them, you may be in a worse position than letting one another have a certain level of espionage in each, uh, each, per, each country's territory. So there's, there's a couple of, I think, different reasons why there's more collaboration and mutual interest in secrecy than we tend to think which is that secrecy is a reason and a, a tool to gain advantage against uh, certain uh, rivals or adversaries or threats. So, so we've been talking about some examples that are a bit more historical. Are there any that are more modern day uh, in terms of a government keeping a secret or later coming out that, that listeners may be currently familiar with? The big one is cyberspace. You could point to the Russian role in the 2016 American elections. I was going to ask you about that, yep. Really difficult decision about when, if at all, to publicly reveal that was something that the Obama administration in its final months really struggled with, uh, according to reports. We are learning more tonight about the lack of response by the Obama administration to Russian interference in last year's election. They were struggling with the fact that, that publicizing it while the election was going on was a sort of doubly complicated decision. Part of the goal here was to make sure that we did not do the work of the leakers for them by raising more and more questions about the integrity of the election right before the election was taking place. You had uh, the normal strategic questions that I, I've thought a lot about and try to write about, which is sort of, well, what do you do if you accuse a foreign power of meddling in your election? Is that something that you really want to, uh, a sort of crisis you want to start and how are you going to stop it? But then you also had the problem of looking like that revelation itself was a kind of October surprise meant to, to alter the, the outcome of, of the election in favor of Hillary Clinton and against Donald Trump. I wanted to make sure that everybody understood we were playing this thing straight, that we weren't trying to advantage one side or another. The reporting that came out a few months after the election was that they had pretty good information on this and ultimately they decided to do some kind of operation back, you know, in cyberspace, back at Russia as a kind of in-kind reply 
which is sort of an interesting way of thinking about how this stuff might be going on right now and, and made, would, would have made less of a, an issue of it, although it ultimately obviously became a huge issue um, with the election of Trump. Coming up, the implications of secrecy for democracy and why Carson thinks most historical government secrets should be declassified. If you enjoy the conversations we have here on Big Brains, then there's another podcast that may be perfect for you. It's called Opinion Has It. Produced by Project Syndicate, Opinion Has It goes beyond the headlines to unpack some of the world's most pressing issues. Tune in every other week to hear from leading economists, policymakers, activists, authors, and more. Make your podcast feed smarter with Opinion Has It from Project Syndicate. Austin Carson has written two books on international secrecy. He spends hours poring over declassified material, but he's still trying to figure out the biggest question that secrecy presents. Which is how to balance democracy and the utility of secrecy in foreign policy. This is a, a dilemma or a trade-off that you know, has been noted and was discussed as far back as the, the deliberations about the original Constitution. And then start to think through, well, what are... Th- our purposes, we want to say, yes, it's okay for uh, our government to engage in this kind of secrecy, uh, even though it makes it very difficult for oversight by Congress or for us as members of the public to understand what's going on, that that's an acceptable excuse or exception to our normal expectations of democratic accountability. One of the most important factors in being able to understand what our government uses secrecy for is being able to see what it's kept secret in the past. That's why Carson thinks most secrets should at least eventually be declassified. I generally have a pretty high bar for what I think should be an excusable use of secrecy. We got to treat the American public as grown-ups, first of all. We can handle this and think through these issues, hopefully, with a richer and more complete set of information. And I think my real concern is, you know, when I think about the consequences of carving exceptions to allow for secrecy for various reasons is that whether or not the public is the, the motive, ultimately, whatever the justification, if a kind of behavior or a decision or a fact about the world is kept secret, the public, in a sense, loses, no matter whether or not they're the reason for it in the first place. Because we lose that ability to incorporate that information in our view of, of the performance of our leaders. And so that's part of the reason I have a pretty high bar, in my own personal opinion, about what you know considerations whether it's public focused or having to do with another government. What considerations justify a departure from our normal expectation? Ultimately, it's very difficult to go back from that. If, if you have uh, an exception or an explanation for why secrecy is justified, it can be used in a variety of ways. Now, one, one thing that I do think we haven't talked about super explicitly is, is that time issue. When we're, we're dealing with this tension between what should be kept secret and what should be made public and the motives behind that, we always need to think about what should be kept secret now and what should be kept secret you know, indefinitely. And one of my criticisms of the current system is that I do think it tends to keep secrets far too long. And for the most part, the rationales for keeping things secret are not ones that particularly last for that long. And so we, that is a compromise. Well, maybe you don't have to make everything public, but allow things to, to become public relatively quickly. That shrinks that scope of, of abuse, because if abuse is... is is taking place, it will be exposed and revealed relatively quickly versus being buried in the archives for 30 years 
um, functionally something that no one could do anything about. And so when the time is right, we ought to declassify this information. What's the timing? And how do you think about this? Is it, is it five years? Is it two years? Is it 50 years? Well, your short answer is a lot sooner than it does now. Longer answer is, I think this is where understanding secrecy is really important. We might want to we might want to get more nuanced than than we we typically might think about this. There might not be a single rule. So you might think about certain kinds of secrets that perform certain kinds of functions. Those merit, you know, being kept secret for 10 years, let's say. Whereas uh, some other set of secrets for And what what give me an example of what kind of secret that might be. Let's say there's a peace agreement that was negotiated in, you know, 2020 and which is sort of a, um, a live issue 10 years from now. Uh, potentially, uh, if the peace negotiation fell apart, a war would resume. Perhaps there's parts of that peace agreement that need to be kept secret, or maybe the transcripts of the discussions back and forth that ultimately led to that agreement, which we could make a plausible case that if those were made public you know, sooner than 10 years, there's a, you know, a plausible scenario in which those materials would actually make it harder to keep that peace agreement in place, something like that. To me, what, what I see over and over again, though, is the second kind of secret, which is a secret that, you know, has almost no real-time relevance, say, five, ten years later. And any scenario that, you know, someone might explain to me if, if they sat down and said, this is why we didn't want to release it, would seem sort of wildly implausible or sort of inconvenient to, you know, a few diplomats for a few days and then move on, right? Those, that's, to me, that's, you know, why I have this sort of high bars. And I think most secrets, most of the time, could be declassified a lot faster than they are because in practice it ends up being difficult to get material safe right now in 2020 for you know stuff that happened uh, in the 80s in the 1980s when i was a kid um, let alone the 90s or the 2000s you can find some things and you can request them things be declassified but those requests take a long time to process they're hit and miss in their success and the sort of bulk declassification in the american context is is pretty slow and i think that that we'd be better served if it was a lot faster The world that we're living in right now, and you see so many instances of the current administration turning traditional norms on their head in terms of gov how governments interact, what's said, what's not said. How do you see what's, if anything, has changed in this current administration that may change the way governments are using secrets, working with secrets? So first of all, the relationship between the, the Trump administration and the intelligence community is one of the most bizarre and historically unique and, from my perspective, dangerous aspects of uh, this presidency. And what that means in practice is that, you know, the conduct of secrecy within the U.S. government seems to have become much more precarious because you, you have an antagonistic relationship between the president and the intelligence community. And so you have reports of things like sensitive information uh, of certain kinds or topics like uh, Russia's foreign policy generally or its involvement in election interference just not being given to the White House because the CIA or, or other agencies believes if they're the bearers of bad news, they're the ones that are going to receive the brunt of, of the consequences. But then, you know, in, in terms of relating to other governments, you mentioned sort of norm busting. You certainly have a, a, a White House, an administration which you know, views its own role, if anything, as a disruptive force. 
rather than a force of preserving the rules and the norms and the agreements that it inherited. And, and that's, you know, that's perfectly fine. Every, every administration has its own foreign policy, and there's no, there's no requirement that you follow what, what others did in the past. But I think in terms of studying it and understanding it, what it means is that we oftentimes find the U.S. in the role of trying to understand how to make these rules, uh, laws, and norms enforceable and work in a multilateral setting to do so. With this administration, that just doesn't happen very often. And if anything, they're trying to, to move away from that, that style of policy. And so that means the use of secrecy is going to be a little bit different. And then the last thing I would add is just, you know, the, the, the sort of inadvertent or sort of unknowing revelation of secrets to other foreign leaders or to, you know, uh, journalists about foreign policy issues is another thing we've seen really affect how secret, the secret side of international politics unfolds in the Trump administration. You know, those kinds of disclosures are usually ones that are very carefully evaluated and debated before they're made and, and not always the case with, with the kind of leadership style we have in, in the White House now. And, and as you look forward, uh, you know, coming out of this administration or seeing where it goes, do, do you see shifts that may be permanent that, that uh, have just changed so dramatically that we're not going to get back? It's hard to know at this stage, but one I would point to uh, which isn't really a, tr- a Trump White House or Trump administration specifically, but it's really accelerated, is I think a permanent feature of, uh, of the future of international politics is that there is, it is simply harder to do things in secret as a government than it used to be. And that's accelerated in some ways in the last four years, but it was a change that was long in the making. But you have a sort of, you know, at least when you're doing sort of traditional things you might do secretly, like a covert action, covert operation, or intelligence collection even. You now have sources like commercial satellite information, sort of cyber sleuths, um, sort of crowdsourcing, trying to figure out, if you remember back when uh, an airliner was shot down over, over the Ukraine, you know, all kinds of fascinating evidence, collection and triangulation and investigation about uh, who, did, who fired the missile and when and where. Uh, that kind of activity, I think, has just led to a sort of fundamental change in the information environment that governments are working in. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't do things secretly. It just means you got to do them, maybe do things a little bit differently in order to keep them secret uh, or anticipate and think through the consequences of exposure. But I think that is something that we will be dealing with for a long time uh, because it represents or is a product of these sort of underlying shifts in information technology, the accessibility of information, and in some ways a democratizing effect that, that we might be happy about. But from the perspective of governments, is something that they have to factor in. Carson is most interested in how presidents of the past have dealt with secrets. His latest research project looks at the intelligence in one specific document, the President's Daily Brief, otherwise known as PDB. The CIA declassified an 18-year span of PDBs from 1961 to 1977. These PDBs are, you know, basically the showcase of the intelligence community. And, and so what I've done is I've built a research team currently at about six or seven research undergraduate and graduate research assistants. And what we're doing is systematically taking those documents, ter- extracting the text out of them so we can analyze over time and even within a single day what's being talked about when, how often, and in response to what. We're also looking at interesting patterns in them like how much material is redacted or withheld and how much does that change over time, right? Like we might think, you know, right around Watergate, was there lots of stuff redacted in these president's daily briefs or not? Trying to understand why 
especially sensitive information, reached the president sometimes, and then sometimes it wasn't uh, being passed on. That work is ongoing, but it's, it's work that's really exciting in the sense that it's historical, but has a lot of these you know, sort of uh, connections to, to today in terms of what the PDB has informed Trump or, or Obama or other presidents in our lifetimes. You know, that's going to be absolutely fascinating looking back at this because there's certainly been dialogue that, to your earlier comments, um, that whether there's been a change in what the is going into those briefs with this current president. And and there's certainly reports that, that it has affected what's shared or not shared. Yeah, absolutely. There's that, in a, th- that change has been really interesting. There's also been discussion about what the style of, of intelligence information being presented to Trump, how that had to change, right? He's much more of a visual person, an oral person. He's not a reader. You know, accounts by the CIA itself about the history of this document are very clear that every new president, they try to figure out what's their style. And they put this stuff in the style of the president because they don't want to be tuned out. That's the last thing you want um, from their perspective. So part of what looking at this historically allows us to do is see But Trump may be an extreme version of it, but every president has their own style. And we can see how that president's daily brief adapts and changes to match the different styles, the styles of Kennedy or of Johnson or of Nixon uh, or of Gerald Ford. And also, in addition to this idea of sometimes the president's getting lots of sensitive information that we ultimately, when it's declassified, is still redacted. And sometimes that information is not really going to the president. He's only just getting the sort of the bullet points and the highlights. And so, you know, that, too, is not just a Trump phenomenon, but clearly something of interest, given what's been reported about Trump. You're teaching here at the University of Chicago. And as you think about teaching students some of the things that you're focused in on, what is it that you're hoping that they are learning from your research and your studies, and where does that hopefully give them a short learning curve as they get into the real world? I take this very seriously as, as part of my teaching. I developed a course called The Secret Side of International Politics. I kind of think of it as my baby. It's really the, the class that's most aligned with my research and one that I've put a lot of effort into thinking about how to teach it and what exercises to assign to really give students a sense of the kind of research I do and why I love that, that research. But the other thing I really emphasize is giving them hands-on experience doing the kind of research uh, that I find to be really interesting. I mean, uh, one of the, the, the motives that I had in, in choosing this topic beyond the ones I've mentioned is I just love working with declassified materials. I, I find it endlessly fascinating to find out what American decision makers knew during Vietnam at certain times and piece together what, we, what, what history tells us that we thought that they knew. So I have an assignment in that class in which students write an original research paper, minimum 25 pages long, that must be based on a a corpus or a body of declassified materials, usually American government, but um, some students have used other governments' um, declassified materials. And um, the papers that have come out of that assignment have just blown me away. It's every time I teach this class. Finals period comes, the, the papers start coming in, I block off a couple of days because <laughs> that takes a long time to read all the papers. Um, but every, you know, time and again, it's fascinating details, um, fascinating insights, and the students, by and large, really respond well to the trust being given to them to you know craft their own argument, to engage in the kinds of research that historians do, or in my case, uh, some political scientists do. And it's just really, it's it's been a really a good experience and one that. Um, 
I'm going to continue to uh, to put energy into and, and to offer for, for students that are here. UChicago's Harris School of Public Policy offers non-degree credential programs that suit any schedule to upskill quickly. Earn credentials in data analytics, finance, writing, or analyzing the election results in as little as six weeks from world-class faculty. Add to your professional toolkit this winter. Learn more at harris.uchicago.edu slash credentials. Big Brains is a production of the UChicago Podcast Network. If you like what you heard, please give us a review and a rating. The show is hosted by Paul M. Rand and produced by me, Matt Hodap, with assistance from Alyssa Eads. Thanks for listening.